my friends. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you today as every day from the sunny climes of western Japan. And it is great to have all of you back for tonight's broadcast. Of course, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio right here on RBN. And as I say, it is great to have you back tonight for another night, a Friday night edition of this broadcast. And it what a week it's been so far with all of the very interesting guests that we've brought to you this week. And just another power-packed, information-packed week here at Corbett Report Radio. So once again, let me thank all of you for investing your time and your mental energy in the alternative media and tuning out of the mainstream garbage that they fill our minds with to keep us distracted from the real issues. And tonight is Friday night, so of course that means on Corbett Report Radio we have the Friday night highlight edition of this broadcast where I dip into the archives of CorbettReport.com, my website, where I've been accruing interviews and videos and articles and various material for the past well, four and a half years now, and uh, that's quite a lot of material, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of media of all sorts that are freely there and totally freely available for download by anyone and everyone. So I once again wholeheartedly recommend those listeners out there who haven't yet done so to check into CorbettReport.com and to use it as the resource that it is. And again, there's just hundreds and hundreds of hours of media there for your listening and viewing and reading enjoyment. And tonight, we have an exceptionally interesting Friday Night Highlight edition lined up for you. I've gone through the archives, combed over the last four and a half years of material, and tonight I've picked out some of the greatest and most fascinating conversations that I've conducted with a particularly fascinating speaker, Bob Chapman, a.k.a. the International Forecaster at theinternationalforecaster.com. And for those few, I imagine, in the audience who haven't heard of Bob Chapman before, I'll just read a little bit from his biography at theinternationalforecaster.com. Mr. Chapman is 72 years old. Actually, I believe he's 74 or 75 now. This must be a few years old. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and attended Northeastern University, majoring in business management. He spent three years in the U.S. Army counterintelligence, mostly in Europe. He speaks German and French and is conversant in Spanish. He lived in Europe for six years, off and on, three years in Africa, a year in Canada, and a year in the Bahamas. He became a stockbroker in 1960 and retired in 1988. For 18 of those years, he owned his own brokerage firm. He was probably the largest gold and silver stockbroker in the world during that period. And When he retired, he had over 6,000 clients. And as uh, people out there might know, he was also the man behind the Gary Allen Report. Of course, Gary Allen, the one of the key authors fighting against the New World Order before most people even knew that the New World Order existed. And once again, Bob Chapman has been in this fight for the past 50 years and actually had to flee the U.S. because of all of the shenanigans that the U.S. government was doing to try to demonize him and set him up for something. So he is actually now living in an undisclosed location somewhere on the planet and conducting interviews from his secure bunker location. I don't even know myself where he is, but um, but there he is. And uh, without a doubt, people really respond very, very well to Bob Chapman's interviews. I get more email about his interviews than any other single subject that I cover or any other person that I talk to. So uh, I've gone over the archives, and I've looked for some of the most interesting conversations that I've conducted with Bob Chapman. Specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at Bob Chapman's take on 
history. So we're going to go through the archives and take a look at some conversations that we've had in the past about history and how historical actors and historical events have played and continue to play an important part in shaping our world. Because if there's anything that I'm sure listeners of this broadcast are well aware of, it's that if we do not know our past, we are doomed to repeat it. And as things get more and more intense and the escalation just continues to grow, if we don't know how empires and civilizations have collapsed in the past, we won't be able to understand what's going on. At any rate, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll start listening to tonight's edition of Friday Night Highlights, right here on Corbett Report Radio. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight is Friday Night Highlights, so we're dipping into the archives of CorbettReport.com for interesting conversations that I've conducted in the past with Bob Chapman, a.k.a. the International Forecaster at TheInternationalForecaster.com. We're going to start tonight with my most recent conversation with Mr. Chapman, which was conducted last Monday, and these interviews go up every single Monday. I have a weekly interview with Mr. Chapman, so if you want to stay tuned for that, please look to CorbettReport.com on Mondays for those interviews. But in our most recent interview, we touched on something that's a very, very recent the 70th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So I asked Mr. Chapman about his own personal experience and reminiscences of Pearl Harbor and how it ties into our current events. I was six years old, so I'm remembered very distinctly. And uh, we all know what it uh, led up to. But in the olden days, um, the United States government used to conscript people and they called it a selective service, and they would take people into the military, usually for two years, and sometimes you were given the choice of which branch you wanted to go into. And uh, I was contacted by the military uh, because uh, they had been going through the IQ records at the universities uh, trying to pick out the young people, in this case it was all men, uh, who uh, had high IQs. And uh, they contacted me and they said, look, you're going to have to go in anyway. And uh, we get this super-duper job for you. Uh, and I said, well, what's that? And they said, well, we have openings for spooks. And I said, what, like Casper the Ghost? And I laughed, and he said, no. He said, and what they call the Army Security Agency, and what we do is we spy on our enemies, our potential enemies. And he explained uh, what went on doing that. So I said, all right, I'll come down and talk to you. So I joined for three years, and uh, I was in counterintelligence. And... As soon as I got involved in training and espionage, I was, it was brought to my attention a book called The War in Ether, The War in the Airwaves. And what had happened is that the British and the U.S. Naval intelligence operations 
had broken the codes of the Japanese diplomatic corps. And that's something later I was involved in, as well as other things I won't go into. And so what that book said was, oh, we had the codes broken. We, were, we know when they were coming. And we kind of invited them in to, uh, to bomb the ships. That's why we lined them up so that we can get in the war. A matter of fact. So I knew seven, over 70 years ago. And that information first was declassified in September of 1967. Nobody, nobody ever paid any attention to it. Even some of the books that I read in the subject never even mentioned it. And these are by admirals. Uh, you know, and looking back as to what happened, <clears throat> I was not aware that the, what was it, U.S. News of World Report had published such a declassified document here in the last couple of weeks. But it bears out exactly what I've known for years and years. And I would speak about it. Uh, I would uh, write about it, and everybody would look at me aghast. I mean, FDR would do such a terrible thing. And, you know, it uh, governments have been doing this sort of thing for hundreds of years. Of course, the uh, way it's been done has been different because of different times. Uh, this is uh, close, I think, to, uh, in a way, the Versailles Treaty. Uh, that was a treaty that was signed between Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, the Western nations that uh, were able to make Germany surrender, and Germany was blamed for the whole war. And uh, they made this treaty, and uh, it involved reparations, which means you caused all this damage, so you're going to pay for it. And uh, there was a book, a book written by General Leon de Grau, uh, who has long since been deceased, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the name of the book is Hitler at Versailles. And it, it points out that Versailles was really the beginning of World War II. By forcing the reparations on the Germans, what happened was that you had a Weimar Republic, which was put in place by the Western powers that couldn't handle a financial situation, and we had those three years of classic hyperinflation. And um, in that time, during the 1920s, and most people are not aware of it, but there were hundreds of armies within Germany. Armies. Some of them were 50 people and some were several thousand. And uh, they were each cohorsive, co uh, the groups that worked together very often. And uh, they didn't want uh, foreigners coming in and invading their country, which they thought would happen. Well, anyway, what happened during the 1920s and 30s, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini were financed from the West. MI5, <clears throat> excuse me, MI6, uh, and this is perhaps nine months ago, this was released by the British, that they funded Benito Mussolini. He was one of their agents. And 
over the past number of years, it's come to light that part of the financing of Adolf Hitler came from uh, mainly the United States, some from Britain and the remainder from Germany. And so why am I telling you this separate story? Because it proves a point that the machinations that you see that have or very often lead to war are something that are created by groups of people, either in or behind government. And uh, <clears throat> we didn't find out about the financing of Adolf Hitler uh, by the Bush family predecessors until after the Second World War. And um, we didn't find out about Mussolini until just recently. And so you have all of these terrible things going on that the average person says, no, people can't be that evil. I mean, hundreds of millions of people have died in these wars. They wouldn't do that. Well, of course, they do do it. And they don't care about human life as long as it's not their own. And so it is, you have to look at at every event from both sides of the spectrum, uh, who are the planners, who are the financiers, what are the groups involved, and um, and then you can find out what's really going on. The, the real problem is that people usually never get exposed to this kind of information. And even when they do, they say, gee, that couldn't have happened. And they're wrong. It did happen. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad that people are writing about it and codifying it because history will want to know it. Because there will be people like you and I who get into the history of why things happen. And that's very important for civilization because it allows people to understand that for centuries there have been groups that have worked together to bring about chaos, changes of government, suppression of peoples, and, as we find out in these latter years, uh, the curtailment of population. And if you read the tomes uh, by these different organizations, such as the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission and Bilderberger Groups, the Illuminati, you'll find that they want to get rid of 60 to 80 percent of the people on the face of the earth because they're useless eaters as far as they're concerned. So these kind of events, you've got to look behind them. And I hope that over this week that some of these major publications like U.S. News and Rural Report will bring out information like that uh, because FDR was a bad guy. He allowed that to happen. Why? Because all the Keynesian economics that was being used during the 1930s to take the United States out of its depression were a total failure. I mean, unemployment in 1940 was 16.2%, and that was better than 39, which was around 17.2%. They weren't getting out. And all that spending as a percentage of GDP was a waste. And they're doing the same thing right now. 
And why are they doing that? Because they want to take the financial system down and they want to have another war as a cover. Because they blame the war on the, polit on the uh, financial and economic failure. And they get away with it. And, of course, there's always the GOAT, uh, which might be Iran or maybe it'll be Russia or China. We don't know. And uh, when you're dealing with sociopaths who are psychopaths, you get your hands full. And I've been studying these people for over 50 years. I can tell you, uh -huh. um, that is a mental framework that's very common. President. Jimmy Carter. Welcome back, friends, to Friday Night Highlights on Corbett Report Radio. Tonight we're talking to Bob Chapman of the internationalforecaster.com. And let's dip back in the archives to an interview that I conducted with Mr. Chapman way back in October of 2009, where I asked him about his vast experience fighting the New World Order over 50 years doing so. And I asked him what kind of reaction that he got back when he started doing this, as opposed to the reaction that we're getting today. Well, I think uh, we got the same reaction that we do today. Oh, this is incredible. I mean, how could this be? Uh, how could people be so evil? Uh, and uh, I'll have to see, uh, show me along the way, and uh, maybe I'll become convinced. And... Uh, that went on for some years. Uh, I started out with Gary Allen and Alan Stang, uh, Anthony Hilder, and uh, G. Edward Griffin, and we all began about the same time in the early 60s. And uh, a little bit later came Dr. Stan Monteith, but I didn't know Stan in those days. He lived in Northern California, and I lived in Southern California. But be as it may, uh, it was uh, very, very difficult to be accepted. And in those days, you had a very, very strong left-wing faction in America that was howling about the Vietnam War, and as it has turned out, rightly so. And uh, we agreed, but on different principles and different methods of uh, ending it. And uh, But we knew then that there was guiding forces behind the things that happened. Uh, no win wars. We, we experienced the same thing in in, in Korea. Uh, I guess we won the Second World War uh, because we overwhelmed the enemy. Uh, the evolution of what I call the Illuminati, and many others do as well, uh, began uh, back in the 13th century when uh, they took over uh, the... Uh, the entire banking system of Europe from what was known for a better name with the Crusaders who ran it. And, of course, there were the purges and the Catholic Church was involved and, and so on. And then in later years, uh, we had the collapse of the Lombard system, which was their Fed Reserve system at that time. And that was in 1348. And, uh, uh, they were thrown out of uh, Venice, which was the housing for the Lombard system, and they were exiled. And, but that didn't do much good because they came back stronger than ever in the uh, couple of hundred years to follow. And uh, and 
And so this has been an ongoing thing for centuries. Uh, some of it's family-oriented, some of it isn't. Uh, they choose very, very bright people who become pliable, and they elevate them within their uh, structure, which is enormously well-financed. And they essentially entrap them uh, into being part of uh, what they are up to. And basically what they're up to is total control of the human race, uh, tearing down excess population, and having a world government which they would, would control and tell everybody what to do because they know better what's good for the people and the people do. And uh, <clears throat> I suppose they figure uh, half the people in the world are useless eaters, so let's just get rid of them. And that's what the wars and the epidemics and things like that, particularly in modern times, are all about. It's a culling process for them. And so, yes, it's diabolical. Yes, it's very difficult for people to believe. But that's a reality if you read history. And such combinations and such ideas uh, predate uh, the modern Illuminati. They go back 6,000 years. Uh, some group was always trying to get control and uh, or share control with others. Uh, we, we saw a good example of that in Egypt with the priestly cult and then the uh, nobility, etc. And so uh, what happens to nobility uh, through the centuries is that uh, they uh, tend to believe that they're godlike creatures. And we saw a lot of that during the Roman Empire. It was responsible for uh, the ongoing 400-year uh, decimation of that empire. And so that, those, that's the groundwork of uh, where this came from. Uh, that's where they're headed. And in modern times, you, you can look at the uh, factional uh, financing of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini uh, during the 1930s came from New York, London, etc. And uh, they put him in a position where he could become Hitler, in this case, where he could become uh, the Chancellor of Germany and uh, and the same with the relatively obscure professor uh, Benito Mussolini, uh, who happened to be a Marxist before he was a, uh, a fascist. And uh, so you have these people financing both sides of everything, and that's how they always win. And yes, they suffer on one side, but they gain on the other. And uh, so. We're seeing today a good example was a recent election in the United States. It was a seamless change. Team A come in and they replace Team B. Where did they all come from? All the bureaucrats came from the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberger Group. And they all have the same goal, and that is to have world government. To everyone he meets, he stares a stranger. Whatever move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Okay, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. Tonight is Friday Night Highlights, and we're dipping into the archive of CorbettReport.com for interviews that I've conducted in the past with Bob Chapman of TheInternationalForecaster.com. And let's skip to what I think is one of the most fascinating conversations that I ever conducted with Bob Chapman way back in February of 2010, where we talked about some of the characters behind this New World Order system and their sordid pasts, including George Soros and the Rothschilds and others. A very fascinating conversation. Again, the link to this conversation and all the other highlights will be in today's uh, show notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio. But here is Bob Chapman on George Soros and the other minions of the New World Order. Uh, George Soros, uh, when he was 14, 15, 16, in that age area, uh, the Germans came into his country, and Mr. Soros was Jewish. And he was able to pass himself off as not being Jewish, but being able to help the uh, SA, uh, which is part of the Gestapo, uh, go around and uh, uh, round up the Jewish people. And the Germans were as much... Uh, interested in getting the assets of these people as they were in shipping them out to some camp someplace. And so George would work with the Gestapo and he would take and roll his own people out and then find out from where their riches were hidden in the house or in the yard or wherever they were keeping them and uh, they would uh, steal it and uh, it would be turned over to the German government, and I'm sure uh, George and others lined their pockets as they completed that process. And, of course, the poor souls, most of whom were Jewish in this case, uh, were sent off to work in labor camps, and uh, uh, those who were unfit uh, were uh, eliminated. And uh, so this is how George got his start in life. And he went to school in London eventually. He was discovered, as uh, Henry Kissinger was during the war, uh, as being uh, someone who was pliable to the ideas of, 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 of the New World Order or World Government or the Illuminati, and all of which is the same thing. And, and so George was brought along just like Kissinger was, were both very bright, uh, young Jewish people, and uh, in that process throughout the years, they lost their Jewishness and became uh, members of this secret cult, is what it is. It's been in existence for many, many, many years. And so uh, George then became involved in business, and what they do in the Illuminati is that they know certain things are going to happen or they're going to make them happen. And their emissaries, such as George and and uh, Kissinger and uh, uh, Brzezinski and key people like that, are allowed to go in and make fabulous amounts of money, and then they're directed as to how they spend it. And then when they are deceased, the money funnels back to the Illuminous compound, so to speak. And so this is where George got, got his money by inside information. And... Uh, it, it was about two years ago on an original uh, market-rigging case in France that George was convicted, and then a few, I guess it was two years ago, he appealed and lost the appeal. They didn't put him in jail, which they should have, 
but the Illuminists don't go to jail because there's too many people within all the governments that are members of the Illuminati. And so they never go to jail. Uh, somebody pays a fine, usually a company, a corporation. In this case, uh, case, George paid the fine himself. And then again, he was caught about a year ago and, and convicted in Hungary of doing the same thing again. Uh, in 1990, 92, uh, there was a, uh, a group of currencies in Europe that were formed together and they were, uh, they were set, to, uh, as to their values against one another. And the British pound was one of them. And so George was given the information on the pound and he shorted it and then the pound left this group and plunged dramatically down to about 120 to a dollar. Uh, currently it's about 158 and it's been as high as two in the last two years. So you can see it was quite a plunge and George made billions and billions of dollars. Uh, he then took that and formed the Open Society and he formed these, you might call them, uh, psychopolitical power groups, uh, guerrilla operations in the former communist bloc countries where they created revolutions such as the pink and the blue and the orange and so on. And these revolutions were all financed by him as an instrument of the Illuminati. And that was to offset any power that could continue to be uh, exercised commercially and otherwise uh, with the uh, countries involved. And so it was the total political organization. In each instance, it ruined each country. I mean, look at the Ukraine today. It's upside down. And, and then the experiment with spraying H1B1 uh, virus all over the country. And then, the, you know, people get sick and then people died. Uh, that didn't happen by chance either. It was to bring the Ukrainians into line. If you don't get in line, we'll kill you all. That's, that was the message. Uh, just like the Kulaks were eliminated by Joseph Stalin a uh, hundred, you know, well, about eighty years ago. And so uh, the the evolution of, of George uh, Soros has been one in the service of you might say Satan and. Uh, and he works for the Illuminati. He's a front man. Uh, whenever they have a project, he'll come out and say, the stock market's going up, and this is why. And then there'll be this big push behind him, and the stock market will go up. At the World Economic Forum, uh, a week ago, he said, a gold's a bubble, and it's going to go down. And, of course, the forces with him attacked gold and through the derivative and futures market, it made it go down, and it's turning now, and I think it's going to go right back up again because this sort of procedure without the sale of gold itself cannot be lasting because they have to cover those positions. And so uh, this is what George Soros does. Henry Kissinger used to do it. Brzezinski still does it. And these have been the most visual of the Illuminati stooges, is what I call them, uh, in exercising uh, power over the world and power or particularly over the financial world uh, by the Illuminus. Well, that's right, and you bring up Henry Kissinger, which I think is an apt analogy because, of course, he did come, as you say, uh, up through the ranks about the same time, um, uh, being recruited um, around the World War II era and 
Of course, um, he was definitely a creature of Rockefeller, and that's been well documented by people like Gary Allen and many others. In fact, that's even been openly editorialized for many decades now that he uh, has been, shall we say, suspiciously well provided for by uh, the various Rockefellers, not just David. But um, uh, certainly, I think they're they're two of a kind in in that they are both working for uh, powers behind the scenes, and and that's easy enough to, to demonstrate. But I guess uh, fleshing that out a little bit, uh, we do find time and again throughout uh, at least 20th century history, for example, um, the name is escaping me at the moment, but I know, I know that uh, at least uh, one of the, the most famous uh, robber barons, I, I believe it was J.P. Morgan back in uh, the early 20th century when he died, it, found, it was discovered that most of his fortune actually belonged to the Rothschilds that in fact he only had a very small percentage of what was uh, attributed to him and his corporation. So uh, it, am I right with that, that it was Morgan that I'm talking Absolutely about? Absolutely right. And uh, the, the Rothschilds actually front for the royal families of Europe. And that's really who the power belongs to. The Queen of England is worth hundreds of billions of dollars, if not in the trillions. Now she's the leader of the pack over there. Before here it was the Count von Trojan Taxis, and the Count died uh, about 20 years ago with a heart attack at 62 years old, unexpectedly. And uh, they, they, the European nobility just freaked out. They said, well, you know, who's going to take care of this thing? So they laid it on the Queen and the people around her. And so they are leading the group right now. And uh, there was a lot of consternation after uh, the Count died. And, and as you can see, this crosses uh, country lines. And all these people are interrelated who are royalty in Europe. Uh, the, the people, uh, uh, in, uh, in England are, are, are basically a combination because of, uh, interbreeding of, uh, German, uh, Dutch, and, uh, even, uh, Italian. Uh, if you go back to, um, the disbursement, uh, in 1438 after the collapse of the Lombard system, there were only two places that would take the exiles, and among them uh, were the people who eventually uh, became uh, the rulers of England, who had been top Venetian families who had been ejected because they destroyed the financial system after stealing it from the Crusaders a couple of hundred years before. And uh, the only two places that would take them were Holland and uh, Wales, which was a remote section of England at that time. And uh, the uh, the Venetians uh, got together with the Lowland Scots, and they took over the House of Windsor. And that's the evolutionary process that involved uh, the nobility. I, I, could, I could spend days talking about this because I know a great deal about it. But uh, these people all operate together. And uh, they, were, they were very upset because uh, the Count had married a model uh, who was not too too quick in the mind, and they were all concerned about some foolish things that she might do, and as it turned out, she didn't. But the fortunes are, are colossal. I mean, it's beyond uh, imagination, and it's been going on for hundreds of years. And this is what we're fighting. 
I think it is, and and you you bring up uh, the idea that the Rothschilds are a front for the uh, royal families. So, and that that's something that often comes up. Is it is it the Rothschilds that um, is manipulating things behind the royalty? Is it the royalty that's manipulating the the Rothschilds? Are there other groups and forces behind them that we don't even know about? And this is something that often comes up. So, so explain the relationship that developed between the Rothschilds and the royalty, and how did the Rothschilds really get their start? Well, they were uh, uh, shmatas, uh, um, uh, uh, gildas. Uh, I can just take them from Frankfurt onward, uh, 15th century. Uh, they evolved as money changes and uh, people involved in business. They became very wealthy. And uh, then they started uh, lending to royal families, and they got deeply involved in them. And they got so powerful that like, they started to intermarry with them. And uh, the name is just put out front. Uh, it's like a, uh, you know, the red shield is Rothschild. And uh, they were just a, a shield for the nobility in Europe. And, of course, when they want, you know, in England says, well, look, you know, uh, we want to have a war with France over there because, uh, uh, you know, we we got to keep the people. and We're having a terrible economic thing going on here, and, and I don't, we don't have any money, so... Uh, the Rothschilds would step in on behalf of the other royal families. They finance both sides of the war. They go out and kill a few million people, and and people forget about the financial and economic situation in the country because they're more uh, afraid of being killed. And and they they've used this ruse over and over again. Well, behind the scenes, the, the Rothschilds and people like them were financing both sides of every war, uh, starting probably around the 13th century. Well, that's that's right, and that's a key point because we know that obviously the the royalty of Europe is all interrelated, and it went in times of of uh, revolt or or uprising among the populace, they would write to their their cousin across uh, in in the next country and 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 start uh, talking about how they needed a war in order to to keep the uh, the population r- you know rallied around the crown, and then they'd start a war with their cousin. And it's important to understand that. Yes, that that was financed by this, I guess, front family, the Rothschilds, who had their their fingers in every part of the European pie. I guess so. So certainly, that was an important enabling part of that. Well, they weren't the only ones, but they're the ones that lasted the longest, and they're still prominent today. That's and, right. Uh, in fact, uh, we have uh, David Rothschild now, who is uh, being touted as uh, some sort of environmental Jesus for his uh, incredible work promoting the carbon eugenics fraud. So we certainly see that they're still able to uh, to get in the spotlight when they want to. Well, that uh, that's because they wanted to have a carbon-based currency. That's what that's all really about. And, of course, uh, uh, euthanasia is part of it, and, uh, and uh, there's a whole list of things. One of the things I learned early on is that when these people do things, they have more than one goal. They usually have two or three or four goals that they want to reach during whatever they're doing. And so if, if it becomes obvious that uh, they want uh, control of so-called carbon emissions, uh, then you look at what the real reasons are. And you just mentioned uh, carbon credits and then carbon uh, currencies and, and the carbon controls. And, and, you know, it's just another scam. And one scam after another, and, and every one of these governments are in on it. 
because the people who control them with, from behind the scenes with campaign contributions are the ones. That's right. And it's important to let, to let the listeners know that, that we're not just um, making this up, the connections between the Rothschilds. It's actually very much there to be, to be seen. And, and we see that in things like the, uh, I believe it's the World Development Bank, which the, the Rothschilds were instrumental in setting up, which is one of the, uh, the main uh, agencies that will be set up for handling the carbon currency as it, as it develops. But what can you tell us about the, that, uh, that push for carbon currency? Well, I, I personally, um, I look at the whole thing after being involved for 50 years, and they got to be out of their minds to think that they're going to make this thing stick. I mean, they would have to control every person on the planet, and that's not going to happen. It just isn't going to happen because communications today, programs like this, talk programs, uh, the Internet, I mean, the minute something happens within an hour, everybody knows about it in the entire world. And you get a different view than you do or would have gotten from the mainline media, which is 98% controlled by these people. And so they get a real problem. I discuss it on Alex's show all the time. We've got them on the run. And they don't know what to do. And they created this monster, and I think it's funny that it's devouring them. Because every time they try to move one way or the other... People like me get on the radio and say, look, this is what this carbon thing is all about. I get about maybe a 100 programs on that all over the country, AM, FM, satellite, shortwave, you name it, I did it. And all of a sudden, other people picked up on it. And then what happened was that everybody realized it was a scam, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't get the legislation passed. And, of course, we were helped by the exposure of the emails and and what was called Climate Gate, and that destroyed that whole thing. They'll they'll never be able to revive it, no matter what they do. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you've been listening to the Friday Night Highlights edition of this broadcast. And here we are in the waning few minutes of the uh, week here, another incredible week at CorbettReport.com in general and Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting in particular. So I, I sincerely hope that you've uh, gotten something out of the very interesting conversations we've been conducting this week on the broadcast and all of the videos and articles and interviews and other such things that are happening on CorbettReport.com on pretty much a daily basis. And once again, for anyone who's interested in my conversations with Bob Chapman, again, so much fascinating, fascinating history and information coming out of Bob Chapman, a veritable fount of information on all things economic, political, and social. So I would once again urge you to check out his website at theinternationalforecaster.com, where, of course, you can subscribe to his newsletter, which comes out in electronic form twice a week. And it is voluminous and contains all sorts of information that you really won't be seeing anywhere else. And, of course, he also sends out physical hard copies to people who are not uh, Internet-enabled, so you can check that out on his website. Or uh, if you uh, listen to our interviews, he also gives out a phone number, etc., at the end of every conversation so that you can get your hands on a copy. 
And, of course, if you want to stay tuned to our regular weekly conversations, they go up every Monday on CorbettReport.com. So, again, just an incredible amount of information, and I always get a lot of feedback about Bob Chapman's uh, conversations. So I hope you will check that out if you haven't yet done so. And just here in the last couple of minutes, let me remind you that all of these conversations, including my weekly talks with Bob Chapman and all of the other articles and interviews and videos, and this broadcast itself, Corporate Report Radio, is really brought to you by yourself. I don't make any money from this broadcast. I don't make any money from putting up all of these articles and videos and interviews for free on my website. The only way that I can really get support from the people out there is if they choose to uh, to donate or to buy my DVDs. And just reminding you, of course, that the Volume 1 of my Corbett Report data DVD, um, comprising all of the articles and interviews and videos and podcast episodes that I created and conducted from 2007 until 2008, is now available for purchase at CorbettReport.com slash subscribe, where you can also purchase... I'm sorry, CorbettReport.com slash support. CorbettReport.com slash support, where you can purchase not only that data DVD, but also my 2009 video archive, which is a video DVD that should play in any regular DVD player that uh, it contains a bunch of videos that I created in 2009. And there you can also sign up to be a subscriber to the Corbett Report newsletter. And that comes out on a monthly basis. The first edition just came out just uh, last week. So when you sign up, you will get a link uh, you, in your email, and you can read through that newsletter. It contains recommended reading and viewing. It contains a news analysis and roundup from myself, and it contains a subscriber-exclusive video. It also contains, for and for this month only, um, until December 31st, 50% off all Corbett Report DVDs. So if you want to purchase the DVD for... 50% off. Please subscribe, and you'll find the link in the newsletter. Once again, thank you all for listening, and thank you for your support. I truly appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week here on Corbett Report Radio.